the transition from the church doing incredible, miraculous things at Jerusalem. Jesus said, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And they are about to be scattered. Starting in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, they're scattered. And they go to all these places. And the message they take with them is the good news of Jesus the Christ, who is the Messiah, who can change lives forever. It's the same message that we share today. So as we reach this natural transition, breaking time in the book of Acts, it's going to change from a church led by Peter to a church being led by a man named Saul of Tarsus, who will be saved miraculously, we will see in Acts chapter 9, and he becomes the Apostle Paul. And the specific call on his life is to take the gospel beyond the Jews to the Gentiles. And he was as Jewish as a man can be, but God said, I want you to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And the rest of the book of Acts, with a few exceptions, is the story of the Apostle Paul doing that. And we're going to see some other things with Philip, a little bit with Peter, but primarily this transition is going to go into Samaria with Philip, and then, boom, it's going to explode everywhere under the Apostle Paul. And so, what is this Go campaign? And again, Marcus is going to be here next week and lay, out, lay it out for you more detail. But basically, let me tell you what we're going to do. And we're really excited about it. If nothing else, for us as believers who are part of Christ Church, both Arlington and Bartlett, the month of September, and just relax. By the way, what's really cool about this, it doesn't cost any money. Everybody's going, woo, I knew he was coming. When he said campaign, I'm thinking wallet time. No, it didn't cost anything. When Marcus presented it to me, I said, what's this going to cost? And he said, nothing. And I said, I'm in. That's really, we're really excited about it. The month of September, and Marcus will be his share, and we're going to, some of you begin to pray about what your involvement might be as far as leadership. Marcus is going to share with you, but here's basically what we're going to do. In the month of September, we're going to break up into groups of pairs, maybe groups of three or four, but primarily pairs, and we're going to walk our neighborhoods. I'm going to take Ewing Place subdivision is going to be mine. That's where I live. Now, you don't have to do your neighborhood, and maybe you don't want your neighbors to see you out doing what I'm about to tell you. I don't care because I'm crazy. So I walk every night. I walk my neighborhood somewhere, and so what I'm going to do, I'm going to get me a partner because my wife doesn't walk, but I'm going to get me a partner, or I may do it by myself. We had one of, the, one of the elders asked, what about those of us that can't walk? Can we drive the neighborhood? And I said, yeah, absolutely. So we're, I'm going to walk my neighborhood, and I'm going to pray over every street. I walk a different street every night. I start out, and I go down, back around to my house. So I'm going to pray over Oilfield Lane. I'm going to pray over Longhorn Drive. I'm going to pray over Ewing Boulevard. I'm going to pray over Aubrey Ranch Drive. I'm going to pray over all the streets that are in Ewing Place. I'm not going to bother anybody. I'm not going to go up to their door and say, hello, I'm Jehovah's Witness. Can I talk to you? I'm going to pray for them. And Marcus will give you some more details about how we're going to pray. And we're going to ask you to do the same thing. Just walk your neighborhoods. It doesn't have to be yours. Some, some of us, we're going to have to, a lot of neighborhoods. Not everybody can take just their neighborhood. may have to go somewhere else. But walk your neighborhood. and Pray for them. And pray for boldness. Pray for receptivity, pray for sensitivity, because in the month of October, we're going to go back and walk those neighborhoods again, and we're going to engage our neighbors. We're going to talk to them. 
oh my God, I got to talk to somebody. Doesn't mean it's for everybody. But how many of you have the capacity to pray? That's good. Some of you didn't raise your hand. I'd like to see you afterwards. You may not be able to walk your neighborhood physically. You may not be able to do that. But if you, most of you can walk and you can pray. That's what we're going to do in the month of September. And in the month of October, we're going to come back and we're going to go door to door. And for those of us like me that are comfortable, I'm going to talk to people and ask them, introduce myself, Christ Church. I want you to know that we love you and we're here for you in your neighborhood and give them some information. There's some stuff that's going to be provided for us free from campus. Uh, used to be called Campus Crusade for Christ. It's called Crew now. The Jesus film, you may have heard of it. So they're giving us some free information and, and stuff we can give, as well as information about Christ Church. And then for those who want to interact with you, we're going to interact with them. But if nothing else, why well, I'm so excited about this, if nothing else, and I believe this with all my heart, if I can get every one of you to begin to pray for your neighborhoods. God tells us in his word, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man or woman avails much. God has chosen to work through our prayers. We do not understand how all that works. What I do know is that's what God has told us. And that you pray. And even if you can't walk your neighborhood, you can drive it, and stop and pray. You can lay it. We're going to have maps. You can take a map and pray over them, but we're going to have some training. We're going to show you exactly what to do. And that's September we're going to pray. October we're going to walk them again. And then November, the first weekend in November, we're going to have a missions summit. All our missionaries from around the world are going to be here. At Bartlett and at Arlington that weekend. So we're going to do local, just like the book of Acts. We're going to do local September, October, and then November, we're going to have a mission summit weekend. And like my class on Sunday morning, some of our other class, we're going to have missionaries here to teach those. We're going to have missionaries speak from this pulpit instead of me. We're going to have, so we're going to do the same thing at Bartlett. We're going to have a night on Sunday night. We're going to come, all come together at Bartlett and we're going to have like a panel discussion, have all our missionaries up on stage and some of a couple of them are local, but they do stuff in other places around the world. Just going to have them there and let you ask some questions. For example, if I could throw out a name to you, like, Gary Whitmore. I did this last time just to see. How many of you know who Gary Whitmore is? Would you raise your hand? Be honest. If you know who Gary Whitmore is, raise your hand. Peter, the winds, and Beth, and my wife Mary. Maybe a few others that I missed. Gary Whitmore is the first missionary our church ever had from 1982. Still a missionary to this day. Does tremendous work with Trans World Radio. And I had lunch, uh, Marcus and I had lunch with Gary about a month ago, and just some great things going on. You've never even met Gary Whitmore. But again, we're going to locally, we're going to pray. Locally, we're going to walk. Internationally, I want you to meet them. And if nothing else, if nothing else, get on Gary's email prayer. I get it every Saturday night. I get an email from Gary, all that's going on in his life and in the life of Trans World Radio and how I can pray for them. If you study the New Testament closely, one of the things that excited the Apostle Paul the most about the churches he had been in was when they would say to him, we're praying for you. How can we be part of your ministry? Let us know what's going on. The poor, some of them, the Bible says, they gave, they begged Paul to allow them to be part of what it's, he was doing, to give out of their poverty 
to him. They were not, they were very poor, and yet they wanted to give. God may lay it on your heart to support some of these missionaries. We so met, um, introduced to you a couple of weeks ago, Matt and Star Arnold's son and his beautiful wife, and they want to go on the mission field. Well, that costs money. Everything costs money. But you know what? God owns it all. And so maybe he lays it on your heart to support some of them. Or allow us, when you give to your church, a portion of everything, you, all those missionaries that you're going to meet on November 3rd and 4th, a portion of when you give, stick in the pretty black boxes that are so ornate, when you give or online, a portion of that goes to allow them to do what they do. Stuff in India and in Guam and Kisternistan and all those places all over the world. We get to be part of that. As well as Ewing Place and Tipton County and Bartlett and every place that God allows us. So that's the Go campaign in general. And again, my, my heart in all of this more than anything else is that it'll get us praying for our neighborhoods, praying that our church can be everything that God wants it to be. Chris, would you do me a favor? Check those two thermostats. I probably turned them up too much. I think Chris likes air conditioning. I think I may have, every week somebody meets me on the parking lot and says I'm freezing. Well, you going to do something about it? So this morning I did something about it, and it, some of you look like you might be a little hot. So let's click it down to about, what, 14? That'd be... <laughs> Linda's going, if you put it on 14, I live in Ewing Place. I know where you live. All right, turn to Acts chapter seven, and let's kind of jump back in. Let's wrap up this, this portion of the book of Acts. If you notice the top of your handout, we're looking at our job in fulfilling the Great Commission is continuing in our lives, and we're looking at Stephen, who's the first martyr of the church. We've already looked at number one, where we've seen who Stephen was, what a godly young man he was. And then we looked at, we're looking at number two, and we're going to quickly finish that and get into the rest of it. Stephen's defense before the Sanhedrin as they accuse him of blasphemy, and we, we've seen where he's talking about in, in his defense that the, the Jews have forgotten their own roots, the Jews have rejected their own deliverers, Moses on and on, and, and they've disobeyed their own law. So what I want to transition in today is verse 44, in the next part of Stephen's defense. Israel has chosen, what he's saying to them, you've chosen paganism over the one true God, and you're accusing me of blasphemy, when in reality, you're the ones that are blaspheming our God. So verse 44, his next point to them, 744. Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness as he appointed, as he had appointed, God appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen, which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. That's the temple. It went from the tabernacle to the temple. However, the Most High God did not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne. Earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord, talking about the temple? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand, God's hand, not made all these things? things. So here's what he's saying. The tabernacle was an incredible, beautiful thing that God gave to them as a portable worship center when he brought them out of Egypt for about 400 years. 
at Shiloh, and you see it in different places. So a couple of places. And then the Philistines took it in. Uh, anyway, we won't get into all of that. They had the tabernacle, their portable worship center, for, for about 400 years. It, it was called the Tent of Meeting because it's where God met the people, the, the Holy of Holies and, and the Holy Place and the Ark of the Covenant, the Shekinah glory of God, all of those things. That was in the tabernacle. Then God had Solomon build him the temple. Exact same scale, Holy Place, Holy of Holies, Ark of the Covenant, the, uh, the table of showbread, the bronze, all of those things in the temple. But what began to happen and what he's saying to them, David didn't build it. Solomon built it. But what happened for the children of Israel, what, in Stephen's defense, what he's saying is, and that's why he quotes the prophet here, you began to worship the building, the temple itself, and forgot what? That you were going there to meet God, not going there to worship your worship, your ritual, your formality became more important to you and you shifted and you slipped into pagan idolatry as a result. In 2 Kings chapter 21, and you don't have to turn there, I'm just going to read it to you. As they began to worship the temple itself, as they began to worship religious formality, as they began to adopt the religion of the pagans around them, listen to what happened to them from the historical book in the Old Testament of 2 Kings. This king did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations, plural. The pagans they were surrounded by. This is the king of Israel, whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel, the pagan nations. He rebuilt the high places, and that means altars, places of worship, which Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. He raised up altars for Baal. That's a foreign god. Baal was an idol that they worshipped. He made a wooden, wooden image, as Ahab, king of Israel, had done, and he worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. They've shifted it. This is the king of Israel, God's chosen people, and they're now worshipping pagans and pagan idolatry and worshipping, the. for example, if you study mythology and go back historically, the Romans, when they couldn't understand something, they created a god. The Greeks did the same thing. Every culture had their polytheism, the stuff that they believed in. When they couldn't explain something, they had the sun god. Egypt had Ra, the Nile River was their god. They had a god of the harvest, so they would have good crops. And so the children of Israel were buying into that. But listen what else they did. They built altars in the house of the Lord. They built altars in the temple itself, Solomon's temple, of which the Lord had said, in Jerusalem I will put my name. He built altars for all the host of heaven, and this king did. He built altars for all the host of heaven, these idols, in the two courts of the house of the Lord the holy place in the courtyard, in God's temple, he's now building worship centers to pagan gods in the temple. Now, that's, not, that's bad enough. Next verse. He made his son, took his own son, the king did, pass through the fire. He practiced soothsaying. He used witchcraft. He consulted spiritists and mediums. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. When he says he made, he made his son pass through the fire, you can go back and read for yourself in the Old Testament. What this, says, what this means is they began to worship a god called Molech or Moloch. You'll see it two different ways, both ways in the Old Testament. They began to worship this god Molech, 
And the way you worship God is you took your infant child and you burnt him to death. They're doing this in the name of God. Sacrificing infants on a burnt altar. And he was the leader of the nation of Israel. He set a carved image of Asherah. That's another idol that he had made in the house of which the Lord has said to David and to Solomon, his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. Manasseh, that's the king, from age 12 to age 67, was about as evil as a king could be. This was where they were getting. They'd taken the temple and just turned it into something that was abominable. In Jeremiah chapter 7, the prophet says this, you cannot, you, excuse me, you trust in lying words that cannot profit. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, walk after other gods, plural gods, whom you do not know, and then you come and stand before me in this house, that's the temple, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered to do all these abominations. In other words, your life is, you're involved with all these pagan gods and doing all these abominable things before God, and then you come to the temple and say, thank you, Lord, for delivering us and allowing us to mock your name, to spit in your face, to turn our back on you. Will you do that, Jeremiah says? And then God says, has this house, through Jeremiah, has this house, the temple, which is called by my name, become a den of thieves in your eyes? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, says the Lord. I know you remember reminiscing, thinking back, when Jesus went into the temple, what did he call it? A den of what? Thieves. Because the Pharisees were doing the exact same thing. They simply had turned it into a money-making machine for them. You would come to offer your sacrifice, they would sell you your sacrifice at a high profit so you could do your religious thing. And Jesus, in righteous anger, turned over the money changers' tables and drove them out with a whip because they had turned it into a den of thieves, exactly like the children of Israel had done in the Old Testament. So now Stephen in his defense before the Sanhedrin and their self-righteousness and their hypocrisy, the true blasphemers who are calling, accusing him of blasphemy, says you're doing the exact same thing. Because God says in verse 48 and 50 that we just read, our God does not dwell in earthly temples made with hands. He quotes the prophet Isaiah. Our God is creator of man. He's creator of raw materials. And worship of him is not about a building. Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4 said these words. The hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Stephen's final point is they resisted their own God. Look at verse 51. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in the hearts and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And, and they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one or the Messiah, of whom 
You now have become the betrayers and the murderers. You murdered the Messiah. You've reached the law, who have received the law, verse 53, by the direction of angels, and you have not kept it. So what happens in verse 53, as Stephen wraps up, he shifts gears. He's been defending himself, saying, all of giving them the history, and now he turns the tables to offense. Said, this is what you have done. This is where you are. Here are your accusations. You're stiff-necked or rebellious against your God. Stubborn, you refuse to submit to his, God's authority. That's what the word means. Obstinate, defiant. How many of you have a 12-year-old? 13-year-old. How many have an 8-year-old that thinks she's 13 years old? You're going to notice some obstinance. It's coming. It's coming. Defiant. I remember my brother. I never defied my father because I was terrified of him. But my brother did. When my brother turned 18, my brother was the quintessential hippie in the 60s. He went to Woodstock. He did it all. Graduated in 1969. And he, was step- he turned 18 in 19, uh, April 1969. And he told my dad, he said, I don't have to do what you tell me anymore. My dad, in his infinite wisdom and compassion, lifted him off the ground by his collar and hit him right here and dropped him like a stone. And I'm sitting, 15-year-old, sitting over here, and he turned to me, and I said, all right, all right, I got it. Hit him again. (laughs) Whatever you want, Slim, hit him again. Obstinate, defiant. I don't care what you say, God. We're going to do what we want to do. That phrase is used 20 times in the Old Testament as God speaks to Israel. You're stiff-necked. I'm sharing my class this morning. Stiff neck doesn't mean you got arthritis in your neck. I know what that stiff neck is. Stiff neck here means I don't care. There's a verse we read this morning that said, nevertheless, we're going to do what we want to do. And they wanted Saul to be their king. Samuel laid it out. God said, you want Saul to be your king? This is what you're going to get. And it wasn't pretty. And the next thing, the next verse says, nevertheless, we want a king like everybody else. God, we know what you say. We got it, but we don't care. Nevertheless, you give us a king. And they got Saul, and they sure didn't like what they got. Be careful what you ask for. God said, you don't want this. You want me to be your king, but I'm going to allow you to have have it. You got free will, but here's what you're going to get as a result. And they said, nevertheless, stiff-necked, we're going to do what we want to do. Uncircumcised in the heart, verse 51 This is such an important phrase because everybody that's looking at Stephen, everybody on this court, everybody that's accusing him, everybody that's got him on trial is a Hebrew of the Hebrews. They're as Jewish as you can be. They're at the top of the ladder in every way because they're the Sanhedrin. They are the Pharisees. They are the the ones that everybody comes to. They're the leaders. And they're the final court of arbitration. They are the judges, the Sadducees. And he's saying circumcision of them was everything. If you were circumcised, you were Jewish, you were in. And he's saying you might be circumcised physically, and you might hold this authority, but you are not circumcised in the heart. And Paul, Saul of Tarsus, he was standing there, so beautiful when you study Acts and then go read what, what Paul wrote. Paul writes about this very statement later. Spends a lot of time writing about circumcision is not physical, it's spiritual. 
You're not a child of Abraham just because you've got Jewish blood. You have to be circumcised in the heart. You have to be a person of faith like Abraham was. Not just be a descendant, but you've got to have a new heart. Circumcised in the heart. Stephen says, you're not. You're refusing to listen to God. You refuse to submit to God. And circumcision, go all the way back to when it was given, was a sign that you were in a covenant relationship with God. What had happened was their pride had come to where they were worshiping the circumcision itself, that I'm a Jew and not the God who gave them the eternal sign of his covenant with them. They'd lost God somewhere in their formality, in their religion, in their ritual, just like their ancestors. They'd given up on God only in the sense, they wanted God only in the sense as long as he would do for them what he, they wanted done. God, you do what we want you to do. And by the way, if you don't think that's relevant, there's a whole plethora of preachers out there today. You can hear that exact philosophy. God exists to do what I want him to do. He's my cosmic genie. Do what I want you to do. And in his final point, you rejected the Messiah. Despite the fact you knew the law of God, you rejected the Messiah. So finally, let's look at Stephen's death. Verse 54. When they heard these things, Stephen's defense and Stephen's offense, his accusations of them, verse 54, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. Cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. These are his enemies, the condemnation of his enemies. When they heard these things, Stephen's defense, he recounts their history, he speaks truth, he denounces their hypocrisy. When they heard these things, look at their response. They were cut to the heart. And that means in the original language, they were so furious they could not see straight, to use a term we might use today. They were so mad at Stephen. Cut to the heart. Look at the rest of verse 54. They gnashed at him with their teeth. That literally means they were so furious at Stephen that they had one intent in their heart from that moment forward, and that was to kill him. Murder, gnashed with his teeth. We were going to murder him. Now drop down to verse 57. They cried out with a loud voice. They stopped their ears and they ran at Stephen with one accord. We will not hear the truth. So relevant today. When you're confronted by the truth, convicted by the Holy Spirit, what is your response? Is it to surrender to God and to the conviction of the Holy Spirit? Or is it just to get angry and say, I'm going to do what I want to do? They ran at him. We will not hear the truth. Verse 58. They cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. I'm going to read you briefly. Chris, would you go over and turn that up now? Turn the two ladies down that got icicles on their ears. I'm going to read you a brief account of a second century stoning. Just tells you in the Bible they stoned him. Listen closely. The trial is finished, the man is convicted, and he's brought out to be stoned. 
They're 18 feet from the place of stoning. They say to him, confess, for it is the custom of all about to be put to death to make confession. And everyone who confesses has a share in the age to come. You're still going to be stoned to death, but confess your sins so it'll be good for you after you die. Six feet from the place of stoning, the criminal is stripped. The drop down is about 12 feet. So he's down 12 feet below them. One of the witnesses pushes him from behind. He falls down on his face. He's then turned over on his back. If he dies from the fall, that's sufficient. If not, the second witness, the Jews always require two witnesses to do anything. If not, the second witness takes the stone and drops it on his heart. If this causes death, that is sufficient. If not, everybody there takes a stone and just starts pounding them on his heart till he is dead. They took him out and they stoned him. Look at verse 59. They stoned Stephen. I love this. As he was calling out to God. Just a little historical side note for a moment. These Jewish men who are stoning Stephen to death are Roman under Roman law. It was illegal for them to do what they were doing. Remember, they had to get Rome to crucify Jesus for them. They wanted to kill Jesus. They are so mad at Stephen, what do they say? We don't care what the law is. We're going to kill this guy. And they did. Now, look at the coronation. I hope I don't get emotional in sharing this, but I, I love this passage of Scripture. It's so important for us to understand the heart of the early church. This young man, Stephen, intelligent, articulate, well-versed, great defender of the faith, and yet God allows him to be murdered so that even here 2,000 years later, we are learning from that. Notice the coronation of his God, verse 55. But he, they're gnashing at their teeth, murderous intent, they're going to kill him. Stephen, verse 55, being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. First thing I want you to notice is that he's full of the Holy Spirit. Even as he dies, he's not saying, woe is me. He's not, he's not as we're going to see, he's not angry at those who are murdering him, even though they're wrong in every way you can be wrong. They're wrong. He's full of the Holy Spirit. He cares about them, even as they are murdering him. No anger, no murderous intent like his murderers. He gazes into heaven. In the Greek, and gazes into heaven means he fixed his eyes there, and that's all he could see. He gazed, gazed, fixed them on that spot. That's why later the writer of Hebrews, and we don't know who the writer of Hebrews is, but he says, run your race with your eyes fixed where? Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. He saved Stephen and he put Stephen in the race. Short life, but incredible life. And as he dies, he fixes his eyes on Jesus who put him in the race and is waiting for him at the end of the race. We'll see more about that in a moment. He gazes into heaven, looking to his God for his hope, not himself. God's will, 
God's justice. He's not looking for a way out. He's simply looking to God. God, if this is your will, I'm cool with it, even though it's a horrible way to die. Verse 55 again. Gazes into heaven and he saw the glory of God. We could spend weeks on just that phrase. But that simply means what God is really worth. Moses saw a little bit of it on Mount Sinai. A little bit of it in the burning bush. The Bible tells us when Jesus came, he came. We saw the glory of God on earth as much as we could take. We're not allowed to see the full glory because we can't handle it. But Stephen was honored to be able to see the glory of God. And then maybe my favorite picture, he got a standing ovation from Jesus. Look at the end of verse 55. He saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Stephen is privileged to be the first person to see Jesus after the ascension this way. Two things I want you to notice about this. He sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. The Bible tells us Jesus ascended to the right hand of God. The right hand of God in Scripture is the highest place of honor, majesty, and authority in the universe. He's Lord of Lords, King of Kings, and Lord of Lords. That's who he is. Seated at the right hand of the Father. Hebrews tells us Jesus came, died once for all, and then sat down. And the reason he sat down is because as our high priest, that's the theme of the book of Hebrews, Jesus is our high priest. As our high priest, his work was finished. If you notice, you go back and you study it, the high priest went in the Holy of Holies. He was the only one allowed in there. He was allowed in there one day a year on the Day of Atonement, the only one that ever went in there. There was no light in there. He was lighted, illuminated on the Day of Atonement by the presence of God, the Shekinah glory of God. Stephen is seeing. The high priest went in there on the Day of Atonement. There were no chairs. No one else was allowed in there. He didn't sit down because he went in there on the Day of Atonement. One year later, what happened on the Day of Atonement? Went in there again. Went in there again the next year, and the next year, and the next year. Till there was no more temple for him to do it in. Since AD 70, there's not been one. Because you know where the temple of the Holy Spirit is? It's right here. In us. That's why what we do is so significant. We are the dwelling place of God. So he sees Jesus standing, not seated, right hand of God, the Lord of Lords and King of Kings, stands up. This is my opinion, so take it for what it's worth. Verse 56. And he said, Stephen said, look. I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Son of Man is a Jewish reference from the book of Daniel to the Messiah. Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself was, I am the Son of Man. It's never used again in the Bible after this point in time. Never used again. This is the last time. The gospel is for all nations. Paul is about to take it everywhere. Stephen is being murdered by the Jews who murdered Jesus. 
And he says, I see the Son of Man, our Messiah. Probably made it even more angry. Verse 57. They cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and they ran at him with one accord. He says he sees the Messiah. And I believe he's standing. This is simply my opinion, so scratch it out later. I believe Jesus is standing to honor the first martyr of the church. And here's what I know he said to him when he got there. Well done. Well done. See, that's all we want as Christians. For Jesus to be pleased with us. We're not trying to buy anything. We're just trying to honor him. I can walk my neighborhood and pray for it. Jesus wants me to. That I can do that. If I can't walk it, I can sit in my car and pray. I can sit at home and pray. What I'm saying to you, I want it to be important to you. That your neighbors know Jesus. Because if they don't know Jesus, they don't have life. They have no hope. They have no eternal bliss without Christ. And you know him. Pray for them. Then for November, we're going to, October, excuse me, October, we're going to pray for opportunities to talk to them. And I know that's scary to some of you. I realize that. We're also going to pray for boldness to do it. It's not for everybody. But you don't know how God might work it out. If you give him a chance, ask him. Pray for them. So verse 59, he calls on his God. They stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He knelt down, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. When he had said this, he fell asleep. St. Augustine, that great, one of the great fathers of the church said this, if Stephen had not prayed, the church would not have had Paul. Because at this moment in time, Saul of Tarsus was their number one enemy. And he was going to become the Apostle Paul. And one of the reasons, notice what Stephen prays as he calls on his God. Number one, receive my spirit. Number two, forgive my murderers. Who does that sound like? As he dies, who's he reminiscent of? Jesus Christ. Don't you want to die that way? When I'm dying, I want people to say, boy, he sh-, or, and, or and when I'm dead. I t- shared this at a funeral I did last year. It's only two things I want people to remember about Randy. One, he was funny. And two, he loved Jesus. For me to live as Christ and to die as gain, Saul of Tarsus would write later on. It's on the wall in my office. For me to live as Christ and break my life and to die as gain. Gain. The world doesn't think that way. We do. And then Lotus verse 60, so cool. The Bible, as he dies, look at the metaphor. I don't want you to miss this. It's so important as you read the rest of your Bible. Verse 60, he said he fell where? Fell asleep. 
You know what the number one metaphor used in the New Testament by the Apostle Paul to describe death is? You know what it is? Sleep. Sleep. Because the death of a believer is not the end. When I go to sleep tonight, God willing, what am I going to do tomorrow morning? I'm going to get up. Stephen died. They buried him. But he went to heaven. Resurrection. New life in Christ. The Apostle Paul would later write these words. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or we die, we are the Lord's. So chapter 8, verse 1, and then we're done. The plan of God. Number one is the salvation of Saul of Tarsus. 8-1. Saul of Tarsus was consenting to Stephen's death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Saul of Tarsus was there, we mentioned, consenting to his death. As a member of the Sanhedrin, he'd approved of this. Now, for just a moment, look back at chapter 7, verse 58. They cast him out of the city and they stoned him and the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. His salvation. For just a moment, flip over to chapter 22 of Acts. Acts 22, verse 20. 22, 20. This is Paul's defense of himself. The blood of your martyr Stephen was shed. I also was standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Saul of Tarsus never forgot this moment. Never. Took it with him for the rest of his life and his ministry that I was part of murdering special young man, and God saved me anyway. Remember later on, he calls himself chief among sinners. What I want to do, I don't do. What I don't want to do, that's what I do. He said, I, I approved murder of this young man. He never forgot it. God used it. I told you a few weeks ago, God never wastes a hurt. He wants to use it for you to benefit others. So on the surface, Stephen's death appears to be pointless and a colossal waste because of who he was. But God had a bigger plan, the salvation of Saul of Tarsus and what God was going to do. You just never know. Share a quick story with you. Some of you have heard but I think it's very apropos, and then we will pray. We'll be finished. Sunday, January 8th, 1956, I was a sparkling two-year-old. On the shore of a lonely river deep in the Ecuadorian jungle, five missionaries were murdered by primitive Aka Indians. News of the massacre shocked the world. To some, their deaths seemed a senseless tragedy. Many decried the promising missionary careers cut short. The five young wives bereft of their husbands, the children left fatherless. 
Nate Saint, who was one of the five martyrs that day, had written these words. As we weigh the future and we seek the will of God, does it seem right that we should hazard our lives for just a few savages? As we ask ourselves this question, we realize that it's not the call of the needy thousands, rather it's a simple intimation of the prophetic word that there shall be some from every tribe in God's presence in the last days. And in our hearts, we feel it is pleasing to him that we should interest ourselves in making an opening into the Alka prison for Christ. And then Elizabeth Elliot, who was the widow of one of the martyrs, Jim Elliot, wrote these words. To the world at large, this was a sad waste of five young lives. But God has his plan and purpose in all things. There were those whose lives were changed by what happened on Palm Beach in Brazil, a group of Indians at a mission station deep in the Mato Grosso. Upon hearing the news, they dropped to their knees and cried out to God for forgiveness for their own lack of concern for fellow Indians who did not know Jesus Christ. From Rome, an American official wrote to one of the widows, I know your husband. He was to me the ideal of what a Christian should be. An Air Force major stationed in England with many hours of jet flying immediately began making plans to join the Missionary Aviation Fellowship. A missionary in Africa wrote, Our work will never be the same. We knew two of the men. Their lives have left their mark on ours. And off the coast of Italy, an American naval officer was involved in an accident at sea. As he floated alone on a raft, he recalled Jim Elliott's words, one of the martyrs, which he had read in the news report. When it comes time to die, Jim Elliott said, make sure that all you have to do is die. He prayed that he might be saved, knowing that he had more to do than die. He was not ready. God answered his prayer and he was rescued. In Des Moines, Iowa, an 18-year-old boy prayed for a week in his room. Then he, answered, and he announced to his parents, I'm turning my life over completely to the Lord. I want to take the place of one of those five. Seems like a senseless waste. God is always at work. Always. So we ask you, let's begin to pray. Would you bow your heads, please? Father, as we begin to pray, and as we pray even today, very simply, Lord, we want to be right in the center of your will as individuals, as Christ's church. We thank you for the vision of the Go campaign that you've laid on Marcus Hart and our leadership of our church. And if nothing else, Father, that it would excite us about praying for our neighborhoods, praying for our neighbors to at least be introduced to Jesus Christ through us. Use us, Father. Convict us maybe that we don't pray enough. I know that's been the case in my life. Pray enough for people I know in my neighborhood. Nevertheless, much less the ones I don't know. That Pray, Father, you'd use me. Pray you'd use the person around me, people around me. That we'd get excited about the gospel. So, Lord, as we close out our time together today, just simply remind us to be your children, praying to you to be used by you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand as we sing, and if you'd like me to pray with you, I'll be down front.